welcome to one of 200, the New Zealand International Politics Podcast. I'm joined today by John and Reese to talk about corporate involvement and I guess particularly venture capital involvement in sporting clubs and institutions. Just over the last couple of weeks, we've had a couple of big surprises with uh, something called the European Super League involving a, a range of different uh, European clubs from some of the big players in that industry. Uh, and it's just come a little closer to home. And even just in the last week with some share sales being floated from New Zealand Rugby to a venture capital firm called Silver Lake. Welcome to the cast, boys. Kia ora. John, you've been uh, across uh, the stuff that's happening uh, closer to home. Uh, been kind of popping me little uh, incredibly interesting details that you've been digging up. Do you want to give us a, a quick rundown of, of what's happening with New Zealand Rugby and some of their uh, recent financial choices? Okay, so um, venture capital has been very interested in sports recently. Um, if you look first at Northern Hemisphere, uh, CVC, a Swiss company, a Swiss venture capital firm has bought 34% of the English Premiership, like 20% of the Pro 14 League, which is the Irish, Scottish, Italian, and South American teams. And they've also bought into the Six Nations. And this was also about the time that there was the push last year for the Global League for clubs and international teams, which would completely change the calendar. And New Zealand Rugby saw this investment and started to talk with CVC. There's an article from the start of last year where they talk about CVC potentially taking a stake in New Zealand rugby. And it kind of went quiet because last year was very busy for many reasons. And the Silver Lake deal is interesting because it is not just an investment. It is a restructuring of New Zealand rugby in that New Zealand Rugby is spinning off all of its commercial properties into a company of which Silver Lake is paying $384 million for 12.5% or $387 million. And they will own that 12.5% of the commercial revenues that come in. Now, New Zealand Rugby have made the point here. They say, well, we've lost a lot of money in the last year and we are not able to compete financially because of these losses, which makes sense. But at the same time, the Silver Lake deal is the first time that New Zealand rugby hasn't had complete control over everything to do with New Zealand rugby since the game went professional in 1996. And I've been doing a bit of digging into who Silver Lake are. Now, they're a tech company. Uh, well, a tech investment firm that fired up in 99, managed to avoid the dot-com bubble exploding and have done really well in areas of tech and health. Uh, you know, they're a, a modern private capital investment firm. They try and get into anything that looks good and maximize their returns. On their website, there's a list of all the things that they're invested in. And under content and entertainment, there are five things. New Zealand Rugby will be the, the sixth one. But the first one is the City Football Group, which I believe uh, Reese will be talking about later. Um, so we'll leave that until we get to the Super League. Um, there's also Endeavour, which is the name for the William Morris Talent Agency, IMG, who do lots of image rights stuff. The entire of UFC, they own that. And they're looking to take that public this year. 
They also own Madison, Madison, uh, 10% of Madison Square Garden Sports, which means they own 10% of the New York Knicks and the New York Rangers and all the MSG properties around the world. They're also part of the Oakview Group, which is into stadium building and introducing expansion teams into US sports. Um, they're helping build uh, the new Seattle NHL team stadium up in Seattle, which is kind of cool, I guess. And then there's the one where I looked on their site and they had this thing that said TEG, Asia Pacific Ticketing. And I looked at the, the, the logo and I thought, I've seen that somewhere before. And I realized it's Ticket Tech. They bought Ticket Tech um, about two years ago. So Silver Lake have been getting into content and entertainment. And they've looked at New Zealand Rugby and said, your commercial income per year is $200 million. We think we can make that $500 million through magic. Or probably through using a lot of the other things they've been invested in so that they can take slices of the fund all the way along the chain. Okay, so they're going to take money out from Ticket Tech. They're going to take money out here. They're going to take money out there. But the deal itself is they say they want to be doing it for 10 years. And that's a long time. It's a decent investment. Of that $387 million, $43 million is going to go to the new commercial LP, which is going to be the commercial rights for New Zealand rugby. $39 million is going to go to the provinces. A nice little payoff for them. And $300 million is going to go just to New Zealand rugby as a legacy fund to make sure they don't run out of money again. It's also interesting that Silver Lake in the first year will only take 3.5% of the revenue, of the commercial revenues. In the second year, they'll take 7%. In the third year, they'll take 12%, and that'll be 12% thereon, which means they have to grow the revenue of New Zealand rugby by 3.5% this year, so New Zealand rugby don't lose money. And then by, by then 7%, the next year, and then another four percent the year after. So they've got to grow that two hundred million of commercial revenue by twelve point five percent in three years, because otherwise New Zealand Rugby are going to end up with less capital income, like less income stream than they've had previously. And this is the point where the only opponents to this within the rugby community are making their stand, and that is the, the New Zealand Professional Rugby Players Association, who are saying, hold on a minute, once this 12.5% goes, it doesn't come back again. You've lost it. If you want to buy it back from them, they're going to value it more than that $387 million. And you've already spent some of that, so you're not going to be able to buy it back. They could sell that to anyone. Is this going to be the right thing to do? The response to it has been an beautiful exercise in manufacturing consent, which is that the New Zealand Rugby Players Association has been attacked on all sides by ex-all-black coaches, by um, ex-players, by members of New Zealand Rugby as being greedy because it's, oh, the players just want more money. They just want more money. And the players have said, no, that's not it at all. What we want is to know that, the, that this is not going to end up with us being screwed. You know, once we sell this, it's gone. We can't get it back. And they do have a deciding vote in this, which is why um, CEO of New Zealand Rugby, Mark Robinson, went on a tour months ago to go and talk to all of these boys, all of the old boys network and all the provinces, 
And over the last week leading up to the decision on Thursday, there were a lot of normally quite quiet coaches and professionals in the media suddenly saying, hey, this deal is a really good deal, guys. Everyone should like this deal. Everyone, come get on board the Silver Lake train. It's leaving the station. Ignore those players. What do they know about it? You know, we know what's best for the game. And it was fascinating to watch this happen because the privatization of New Zealand rugby itself is or should be a big deal. It should be a massive fucking deal. It should be something fucking huge. But it's not. And it's not because they've worked very hard over the last year to present reasons why it's actually very good. Like they say, teenage boys are leaving the game in their droves. And if we've got $300 million, we can pay them to come back? I'm not <laughs> sure where that one works on. Yeah. They've said, we can make women play rugby now and we can treat them like real people, which kind of doesn't match with New Zealand rugby's recent history of you know, they didn't sell Blackfern's merchandise until Mad- Madeline Chapman, the, the spin-off, did a whole thing saying, why the fuck can I not buy a shirt? You know, they, they just didn't include women in their commercial strategies at all. Yeah. So now saying, oh, we've got to sell this off because we, we want to do all this stuff with women. We want to actually pay the money because we're not doing that. We want to increase the game. And these good reasons are, they sound great and they've convinced a lot of people. But unfortunately, the problems that they have with the revenue and funding models are as a result of how they set up the game back in 96. So obviously you've got the five franchises and they have a minority investment of like equity firms. So, you know, each Highlanders, all that lot, they've got some money behind them. But there's also a salary cap. So you can't have the French model where, you know, uh, Vladimir Gas Money comes in and decides to spend $500 billion that he's got from shooting people in the face in Siberia on rugby players. And that's kind of kept it... It stopped everyone from going bankrupt, yes, but it's also limited the amount of potential revenue that can come into the game through other capital streams. They also did the deal with Sky, which took rugby off free-to-air. And then it went free-to-air and it went it went from Sky and then it went to Spark for the World Cup and everyone was like, oh god, this is really bad. And it's taken eyes off the game. I think and that's like a, a really key thing as well. Just in, in, If we are trying to judge any commercial decisions they're making, just look at a lot of the other commercial decisions they've made historically and and just how horrific they've been for like the people's game let let alone for their bottom line but they invested 20 million mm. in sky last year and that stake that 20 million stake they invested is now worth 5 million apparently <laughs> and it's this hey we and I'm like I'm suddenly looking at that 300 million for the legacy fund I'm like they're going to fucking lose it somehow I don't know how they're going to invest in a monorail or something it's going to be fucking Lyle Landley shit like all the way along there's no outside investment and now they're just like, well, we've got to get this money in somehow, so we'll sell off the thing that's making us money, but only a, just a slice, a thin slice. I think, I mean, I'm not really an expert in rugby or anything. I don't really follow it that closely, but I think that the um, New Zealand Rugby Union has done a pretty good job over the last 20 years of building this narrative that there's all this money outside there in the world and New Zealand has to engage in all these steps that we the fans don't really like, but we have to do it or else the game is going to get destroyed, right? That's a really important thing to you know, our national identity or whatever. 
will get destroyed and we're the kind of gatekeepers to make sure that it doesn't happen. But, you know, as John has kind of outlined, a lot of these decisions seem on the face of it, at least to be kind of absurd and not really in the interest of the game per se. One one of the things, um, John, maybe you can help me understand this is, you know, there's been a pushback from the, uh, the players association I mean, I, I really haven't been following this at all, but it seems as if there's been very little pushback from the public, right? Like, is that the case? I mean, I'm just thinking, I know we might talk about this a bit later on. I'm thinking about the contrast between what happened in the European Soccer League, um, or sorry, the Super League. And, you know, a large part of that um, ostensibly was about the fans going out there and causing a ruckus, like a real ruckus. And there just seems a kind of absence of that with this decision. And I don't know if it's something about the kind of the national character or something or something like that. We were just a bit more docile and just accept things, but it just doesn't seem very, it just doesn't seem as that big a deal amongst the public. I think um, like you said about um, New Zealand rugby have done an amazing job of being a closed shop for the game. I mean, one of the things that's remarkable about this is the fact that there is an argument going on that the, the players union and New Zealand rugby are scrapping it out in the press because usually it's a, they're a united block and they all work together. You know, they might have disagreements over player contracts and things like that. But the fact that you've got Brett MP and Mark Robinson saying, well, the players are just greedy and they're not doing this and they're not doing that. And the players are going, well, no, we're interested in what about the firm? What about the Maori All Blacks? What about the, what, a, you know, what about the stuff we have to look after? Our cultural Tonga. If suddenly this gets slapped on lunchboxes because we've sold out to this company. That is something the players are not willing to put up with. And there is that there is that element within the players' union of the Maori players who are looking at this and going, oh, great, some more people have come to New Zealand and they want all of the stuff that's worth anything. Mm. You know? There's a, there is that element to it, which New Zealand rugby have been dismissing and saying, oh, no, 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 we've, we've got agreements on that. The thing about that is, obviously, there are, you know, there are, there are lots of things which players aren't happy with. But it is very clear that they are taking the role of the fans in this. And some of that is because New Zealand rugby fans tend to be a bit alienated from their clubs. You don't get that mad support like you get in soccer, for instance. And some of that comes down to the fact they are franchises. They're like, you know, was it 26 years old or something like that? They're 26 years old now. And. They do play maybe eight games at home a year. That's not a lot, you know? They You don't get to see the game as much as you would if you go to your local club rugby side. Yeah, so one of the things with the, the franchises as well, for example, is you said they've been you know established for you know more than 20 years now. But it's really taken a lot of the grassroots out of the game at, at the professional entertainment level. You know, you're not uh, turning up and cheering on your uh, your kids at the club rooms, you know, it's, there is this whole like grassroots level and structure to, to rugby where, and to league, I guess as well, um, where it's played here, where people get out every weekend and go and play and through the school game, you know, it's, it's really big here. And then to the local clubs, uh, and then people get scouted into these franchise teams and it might be across the country. And yeah, there is a disconnect there, that, um, that level of alienation there where, People turn up to watch it as a spectacle, and and you do have diehard supporters, but not to the same extent, not to the same community level where you know it's you've had 
large numbers of people have had generations of the family involved, like you might with football clubs in Europe. I think it's the the trickle down thing as well. You know, the professionalization of the game was meant to provide for the grassroots, but instead, all of the sponsorship got sucked up by by the franchises and, you know, by by the ABs. And it was telling last year with the establishment of Super Rugby Aotearoa that they had games at like three in the afternoon for once, and people brought their kids. And everyone's like, how good is afternoon rugby? I'd forgotten that having rugby at three in the afternoon on a Sunday, it, it fucking rules. Whereas 7.45 on a Friday night or on a Saturday night, you're not taking the kids to the game because it's late. Yeah, And, and you so- better get there and you've got to get back. Whereas 3.45, you're like, no, we can do this. We can go and watch a game. And that's part of the, you know, the hiving off to Sky and the, you know, Sanazar, the, the, the thing that ran all of the super rugby up until everything fell apart because of COVID failed because they extended too far you know to argentina and to japan and that failed and it was never popular in the first place because i'm a blues fan and you know it's hard being a blues fan because we're not very good at rugby a lot of the time <laughs> but i used to hate that it's like oh we're playing away at the stormers oh god the kickoff's 2am i'm not getting up for that you know i'm and it's it seems absurd that the team from my city is playing 12 time zones away that way, you know? And you, you have to watch them. And they're like, oh, yeah, they're playing a couple of home games, but then they're in, then they're away in Dunedin, and then they're off to Australia for two games, and then they're going to South Africa, and then they're going to Argentina. So it's like, how do you build that continuity of experience when you have, like, a month or two between games? You know, how do you build the, the sense of community you were talking about? You know, the people that you know around you in your seats and stuff. If by the time you're like, if you're not invested in it, by the time it comes back round, you're like, I could go, but I might as well just watch on TV or find yeah. a stream. And even, you know, with some of those 8 p.m. games here at Better, here in New Zealand, like you're saying, you, you don't take your kids. Um, and a part of that is the environment has become increasingly monetized, you know, just as a baseline. And everyone's fucking pissed. Yeah, everyone, the experience is, yeah, the experience is not good. <laughs> Going to live sport a lot of the time in New Zealand. It's, it's, um, you know, it's at eight o'clock. Everything's expensive. If you want to take your family, it's going to cost you hundreds of dollars. It really does make it, you know, firstly unreachable for lots of people and then just not that fun, to be honest. And so it's, an, uh, but then it seems to me that the people running the game don't care, right? So it doesn't really matter if you're going to get 5,000 people for a blues game because the money's in the TV rights, right? And so if you're having, you have these 8 p.m. kickoff times because that is a better time, I think, for South Africa, or it used to be at least, mm-hmm. um, if I'm doing my maths right. Um, I grew up in South Africa, so I, I grew up watching super rugby games from New Zealand, and I, I remember them being at a pretty reasonable time. And I think that was because it was an unreasonable time for people in New Zealand. <laughs> yeah, you'd, have, you'd, have them in the, you'd have them in the morning, eh? Yeah. Yeah. And you kind of wake up and watch them. Because we watch, you know, we watch the English Premier League in the morning. Yeah, in the morning yeah. here, because it's you know, it's like for breakfast we watch that, and it's it's that same kind of thing. I mean, it was interesting you pointed out there the money is in the streaming, the streaming and the TV rights and the advertising, the sponsorship revenue, because Silver Lake have also been interested in investing in the A League, which as a A League fan, um, 
spending 200 million to buy a quarter of that league is spending 200 million too much. It's odd. And they're also looking at buying some, like buying a stake in Rugby Australia. So Silver Lake could own a slice of commercial interests in Trans Tasman Rugby, which would use it as a block. I'm guessing against CVC in the UK. Yeah, against Six Nations. Um, I, yeah, I would so argue. You're kind of, yeah, you're looking at a, you're looking at this thing where what's happening here. It's like, oh, it's good for the game and stuff. But what you've got are two very very well financed investment firms preparing to have a shit fight over the advertising and streaming revenue. Yeah. And the reason why they're getting into it now is very, I think is quite interesting too, because they are tech firms. They work in health and things like that. But they've identified that the money here is long-term and very lucrative, yeah. which ties it in a very real way to the European Super League. Yeah. In a, I mean, in a very real way. I mean, the European Super League... I think that it was going to get financed or bankrolled by, I'm going to forget that name now. What is the... Uh, the JP Morgan. Uh, JP Morgan, that's right. Right. So this was, you know, I think they used the um, the kind of resentment of these big clubs who thought they weren't getting a big enough share of the pie, which was absurd to begin with. These are big clubs. So just for people that aren't um, familiar with this or for listeners who aren't familiar with this, a couple of weeks ago, a bunch of big European football clubs decided they were breaking away from the kind of standard competitions and essentially um, starting a breakaway league, which they were going to call the European Super League. It had been in discussions for a number of years, and then all of a sudden, over a day or two, it just, just kind of happened. And it was 12 clubs, six um, English clubs, um, and they'll play a kind of important role in the story because um, a lot of the eventual pushback, I think, seemed to have come from England. There was, from my reading and understanding, not that much in like Spain and Italy. Nothing real compared to what happened in England, actually. But their plan was to have this kind of like closed shop of this this um, this league, where they played against each other a bunch and maybe invite other clubs if they if they found it, you know, appropriate when they felt like it or something. Um, <laughs> but the, the the problem here is that this whole, in terms of the kind of values of the game, it rubbed very strongly against the kind of values of the football game because. In football, unlike in most sports, um, you have things like promotion and relegation. So nobody's guaranteed a spot in the top league or in the European competitions or anything like that. You always have to qualify. And yes, um, a lot of the time, in principle or in practice, it ends up being kind of a close shot because only those very big clubs can make it, really. But it's not um, impossible. In fact, Leicester won the league a few years ago in what is probably the most amazing (laughs) sporting kind of um, result um, in my lifetime for sure but this whole um, idea of kind of small clubs eventually making it to Europe is a big part of why people support their clubs and you do have these kind of long cycles right so yes it's the case that these what they what are called the big six the big six clubs now but um, you know as many people have kind of commented in the 80s that would have been somebody like Nottingham Forest or something who I don't even know what league they're in now but they're certainly not even in the Premier League so that it is this kind of cyclical nature to the game. And this matters because these clubs have very long histories, right? These aren't clubs that started 10, 20, 30 years ago. These are, um, you know, more than 100 years old. So you have this kind of long history um, for all these clubs. And people have a kind of hope of their clubs, you know, one day rising back to the top. And six clubs are essentially going to kind of close the door on that um, and say, well, this is the way it is now. Um, we have this huge investment 
from JP Morgan and we're just going to do it. And I, w when it first happened, uh, I mean, I was just like, okay, this, this obviously really, really sucks. Um, it's I'm pretty pissed <laughs> off. Um, but that's just the way it is, right? Like I didn't expect it not to happen. I thought that we were all going to get really mad and we're going to, you know, post heaps online and <laughs> everything else will happen. And in the, you know, in a month, you know, we'll be kind of used to it. And then in like three years, we'll be like supporting our teams in, in the super league. Um, and you know, that was just my sense of it, but there was a quite kind of drastic pushback against it from all quarters. So there were players weren't happy with it. Some managers weren't happy with it. You know, pundits on TV were quite, um, dramatic in their kind of like denouncement of it. You know, they use very strong language. And these are people that were ex-players that have lots of respect in the game. Um, and even when this was happening, I was like, well, they're just going to write it out. That's what these, that's what big money does, right? Um, they don't kind of care about what we think. They mm -hmm. they have backing. They have resources. Um, all we have is our kind of opinions in some way. Um, but, you know, a few days there were protests at clubs. So the important thing here is that these were, these are fans protesting their own clubs, right? So protesting their own players, you know, throwing things at their buses and things like that, going to their training grounds and harassing them, stuff like that. So kind of direct action in a sense. And after a couple of days, first Chelsea withdrew and then Man City withdrew like an hour later. And as soon as that happened, I was like, oh, shit, this is, this is this not going to happen. Once, once you have people running away, this is, this is kind of dead in the water. And then the four other English clubs pulled out as well. I think it's kind of interesting, actually, the sequence of clubs that did withdraw because the clubs that withdrew last were the clubs that were owned by American, uh, either venture capital firms or, um, you know, big investors like the Glazers on Manchester United and so on. And the sense that I've got from reading it is that these were the people that were most strongly in favor of this and then like Chelsea and um, Chelsea was owned by a kind of Russian oligarch called um, I'm going to use his name wrong now Ibrahimovic is that right no that's wrong Abra Abramovich Abramovich that's right Abramovich is the football Roman Abramovich yeah, yeah. Yeah. Zlatan Ibrahimovic just thinks yeah, yeah. everything that's yeah yeah that's right yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so someone like him it's not clear that he actually owns Chelsea to make money right in fact it's pretty clear that he doesn't necessary care so he pours lots and lots of money into the clubs tax break right he's he's for laundering yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe something like that wow well. he doesn't give the club money he loans them the money does he <laughs> yeah it's all a yeah. loan man and okay yeah, like, yeah this is this is legal this is this yeah is yeah perfectly this is totally, legal totally above board whereas i think the american owners of the other four clubs like man united Arsenal, and so on they really think of these as investments and they think of them more so as like uh, a place to, you know, or a property or uh, an investment that will earn them money. And they don't really care about the football that much from what I can tell. Yeah. Right? They certainly don't. I want to say yeah. as well, like in yeah. the case of the Glazers at Man United, they, they right from day one, that was very, very apparent. They, they took a, a huge loan um, and then wrote it off against the club as soon as they'd made the, made the uh, yeah. purchase. Uh, they've taken, I think they've taken more money out of the club then they've invested in the club by a significant amount. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they really are there in the, um, the worst sense of venture capital. Yeah. And, you know, from the, uh, 
their um, perspective is that, you know, we haven't won the league in God knows how long, nearly 10 years now, I think. But financially, we're doing really well. So, you know, we have lots of revenue. The revenue is through the roof, right? We're still probably the biggest, one of the biggest clubs in the world. And so they, I think, they, I don't think they quite understood why there would be this backlash. I mean, you get into this league, you play against Barcelona and Madrid all the time, big name clubs. What's, what's not to like about that? And one thing that I noticed online in this is that this might be a kind of cultural thing where I don't think Americans quite got it. So a lot, I saw a lot of people that were kind of Americans who were like, well, what's wrong with the Super League? This sounds freaking awesome or something, right? I saw one thing that was really kind of funny, which was that we're trying to say that all the opposition to um, these American owners is a form of xenophobia. <laughs> it was the Arsenal fans burning the flag, wasn't it? They burned the American yes, flag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. the Emirates. And, yeah. and these Americans just went, well, that's a little bit strong. And it was just yeah, loads, yeah. Of, loads of Arsenal fans and other football fans going, yeah. no, that's fair. That's, yeah. that's really yeah. fair, actually. Another thing that you, you, know, you spoke about this earlier, John, in terms of what the New Zealand Rugby Union is doing, saying that, you know, we'll put more money into the women's game. This was another one of the things that was, like, <laughs> used in the European uh, Super League. You know, one of the benefits, apparently, was that the women's game in all these clubs is going to have a lot more funding, which is so rich because even though these clubs are the biggest clubs in England, I think especially Liverpool, I might be wrong about this, but I think especially Liverpool have done a terrible job of, like, promoting the women's game. They just don't care about their, their women's league. Right, Liverpool's, so, team, Liverpool's women's team got relegated last year. Yeah, um, yeah. They're now playing the, yeah. the championship because they've got Michaela Moore, the New Zealand international placement. Okay. Kind of sick, yeah. You know, but. So it's like, it's just it's just one of those tactics that um, that people like to use when they're trying to do something incredibly um, shitty is to try and invoke these kind of like equity, the superficial kind of equity. Things. Yeah, yeah, the woke <laughs> thing, right? It's just, it's so, it's so transparent to anyone. But um, they're certainly not going to stop trying anytime soon um, to try and justify their behavior. Yeah. I think it's in, you look at it, if you look at the Premier League table, those the the top six are currently first, second, fourth, sixth, seventh, and tenth in the league. Yeah, that's so the, just, the other thing. What is? I don't want to. I know this isn't really a sport podcast necessarily, but what are Spurs doing there? I mean, you know, what, <laughs> what, what are Arsenal? Can, what are Arsenal yeah. doing there, man? Let's be yeah. real here. Yeah, what yeah, are yeah, Arsenal yeah. doing there? Um, these these aren't even like clubs that have this long history in European football or something. It's just they're just the clubs with the most money. That's that's just it. Yeah, know, or brand recognition, also, right? Yeah, there's, yeah, there's yeah a, exactly. There's a strange like through thing here. From if you go from Kyle's beloved leagues and what happened to them around the turn of the century, this mm. was before big capital got it. I'm, I'm didn't sorry, have bro, to, you didn't have to do that. No, to no, me, man. We, we do because it paints a very interesting picture about why the European Super League ha- like has to happen in their minds. Leeds gambled on finishing in the top four and getting Champions League revenue, took out loans against it, and then their performance on the pitch wasn't good enough. So they had to default, start to default on loans, and bad things happened. But it's okay now. You've got Marcelo Bielsa, the football is magic. <laughs> yeah, I've had that for 20, uh, 20 year cycle almost. And then the Glazers come in about 2005, 2006, I think it was. And the Glazers bought in around then, because I know Beckham was like. Beckham was kind of still in, on the scene there, and they overleveraged the club, and you had the fans split away and start FC United and Manchester. And then a few years later, when the credit crunch hit, my own beloved Portsmouth was a football club that was being run on the fact that our owner could get lots of cheap credit from banks. And the minute the credit crunch hit, all of those lines of credit just dried up. 
we suddenly could not afford anything and we crashed down the league's multiple administrations. So these are three different ways in which clubs have gambled. Like Leeds, it was, we think we can be one of the top teams and it didn't work for them. And they were allowed to fail. With Portsmouth, it was the global financial system melted down and the club found itself adrift and failed and was allowed to fail. Um, the Glaciers coming in and leveraging out is very similar in that the club, it's okay if they don't win the league because as long as they keep getting the revenue from the TV deals, they don't care. I think Man United got the best of that one, didn't they? Although I'd love but, to see them fall down the league. Uh, you know, uh, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. <laughs> But you look at those three examples of what happens with capital and clubs. And when you talk about how there weren't that many process in Barcelona and places like that, there's one thing that unites most of those 12 Super League clubs, and it is they are hideously in debt. Mm. They have been losing money, not just because of COVID. They are hundreds of millions of dollars in debt. And what they are looking to do is secure a permanent revenue stream by having a closed shop. Yeah, and that is what they wanted. Yeah, they wanted to pay off that. You know, Barcelona nearly a billion billion pounds in debt. They wanted to pay that money off with that initial Super League money, and then slowly chip away at it because they know that on sporting terms alone, they may not be able to afford to compete at the highest level, and they could do a Leeds or do a Portsmouth if there's another financial crash. And has anyone noticed it's nearly been uh, it's been 12 years this year or 12, 13 years since the last financial crash? We are due. I mean, and I think a lot I of think these businesses... I think it's kind of happening at the moment, right? Yeah, think, a lot I, of these businesses happening. have noticed it and are going, oh, we need to find a way to secure a long-term revenue stream, such as from TV rights and sponsorship, which can ensure that we stay afloat, which might explain why Silver Lake have been buying into so many sports teams recently. Yeah, and especially in uh, kind of the oceanic region, right? Um, a lot of that Silver Lake news was coming out just after we had, you know, 50,000 people at uh, Eden Park. You know, that's, that's really good PR for anyone looking to get into kind of entertainment rights. Like, this game, the game is going to continue in New Zealand and Australia. Uh, there's going to be, and it's going to have an atmosphere which we cannot deliver from some of these other clubs which have been behind closed doors for, you know, nearly 12 months now. Mm. I, I think yeah. it's like, oh, Silver Lake's part, it's probably like a pretty decent shot. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting strategy. But also, I guess, you know, like we talked about earlier, they have got... They have so much bets, right? They've got a whole chain of investments, which means they could run... They could have the All Blacks playing in a Silver Lake stadium yeah or a silver lake stadium with tickets sold by ticket tech they're selling the shirts and they're taking a bit there they're taking a bit from everything along that chain do you know what i mean i just want everyone to think about how horrible it is to try and get tickets on ticket tech and how many extra charges are tacked on and administration fees and etc you know these are the kind of models that are pushed when when uh venture capital firms are involved because they they need to be able to take to, to make their money back in the first instance and then for their investment to deliver. And they will find a way for that to happen if it's not occurring naturally through growth. Mm-hmm. Going back to um, some of the comparisons, I guess, between the ESL and, and what's happened in New Zealand, you know, you're saying, Reese, you know, people, there was direct action uh, in the case of uh, some of those clubs in, in the UK. 
right from the start, you know, protests were turning up uh, at the stadiums. But even after clubs were pulling out of the idea of this league, there were protests asking for like chair people's to like leave the game entirely. Like and yeah. at Arsenal, it was their American chairperson, I think he is, or fifty-one percent uh, owner is Stan Cranker, who is yeah. uh, an American, and there were just massive Cranker out protests. Yeah, um, you know, really, um, really, really direct stuff. Yeah, exactly. And the the thing here is that the fans can't trust these owners, so they've they've shown their hands, right? So they've tried to do something a couple of years ago called the Big Picture Project or something, or Big Picture, which was another thing where on the face of it, it looked like they were trying to perhaps help football at the lower levels, but was going to benefit them um, entirely, right? And they walked that back and then they said, okay, you know, at each stage they kind of say, okay, well, we, we listen to the fans or whatever, we listen to the community, but then it's clear that this is all a front, right? Like if they only sorry because they got kind of called out on it, right? Um, and, you know, I think that one thing that is kind of interesting is that none of the leagues, so none, none of the clubs that um, were going to join this league came from Germany, which has this very interesting and, you know, um, good um, ownership model, which is that, you know, the the fans or the, the, the in some way own 50 plus 1% of the club, right, and have say on boards and things like that. And the kind of question that is being spoken about in England um, is how it can be the case that maybe there's something like this could be implemented um, at those clubs. It seems practically very difficult to do. The kind of worrying thing from a political perspective is that you can never know whether this guy is just kind of like paying lip service to this, but Boris Johnson has shown some interest. He's had meetings with kind of like fan organizations and stuff and is has said things like he'd be open to, maybe he, it wasn't her, him, but one of the, the Tory politicians had proposed this kind of process whereby I think it was something like the government might buy shares or buy um, ownership in these big clubs that the fans can then buy back. So basically the, the sense is that the government would loan fans, right, to have ownership and then the fans pay them back interest-free over time, something like that. And this is... I think kind of worrying from a kind of left-wing perspective if if these if these Tory populists are going to do something that in many ways goes so kind of fundamentally against their kind of free market principles. And, you know, a lot of these clubs are in the kind of like um, the labor north of England. Um, I just have these concerns about how this is all going to play out yeah. all the time. The Tories, the current Tories in the UK have been horribly good at as, as moving in on some of that grassroots left-wing populism whether or not that's yep. the, the actual outcome um a lot of the time exactly that's, um, the, that's the thing they've got a, a whole media infrastructure which is giving it credence as well right um and and the thing is with this like it's nothing lost from the government if they get fans more involved in their clubs like it's it's pretty win-win for them uh yeah you know or they just buy it and then just keep it for themselves <laughs> you know like yeah, uh, and then so, I mean, I, I think it really can't be understated either just how important football is in the UK uh, at a at a community level all the way down. Um, there was a really good, I guess, five minute video um, for Double Down News by uh, Jeremy Corbyn, 
because he's he's previously um, actually had this plan himself, hasn't he? Uh, in terms of legislating to say that big clubs had to be partially owned by the fans. Um, but he was uh, talking about the history of the game and you know the way that clubs were formed by workers. You know they they started out this way, and it's been a slow as people with money have noticed that that's a money maker for them. That's where. You know, this power has been taken off the communities and the fans who created them. He had this really great anecdote about uh, how Arsenal has red and white shirts uh, because they didn't have enough money to fund a strip. And one of the other clubs, I think Nottingham Forest, sent them their spare shirts. Mm-hmm. You know, like, and this, you know, this goes back a couple of, a couple of hundred years now. Um, yeah, the, uh, it goes back to the late 19th century. Similarly, uh, Juventus pay, play in black and white stripes because Notts County sent them some yeah. kit. So, and that's that's just how it is, you know? And it is the, the transition of ownership is fascinating too because it was working clubs and then it was your local mill owner and things like yeah. that. And then you kind of, your dying end of that is your Jack Walker buying the league for Blackburn in 95. Uh, which everyone of a certain age will remember because it's the only time Alan Shearer won anything. Um, <laughs> that's true. Um, and um, and I think it was, sorry, Jack Hayward up at Wolves as well dreamt of getting them up into the Prem and managed it. And the, the big thing was on this bloke is in his 80s just bursting into tears when they get there. And that kind of, your local boy done good goes and puts money into the club. Whereas now it's... You know, Roma Bravovich flies over London in a helicopter, points at a stadium and kind of says, I want that one. Or the Abu Dhabi royal family say, we need to make ourselves look less evil. Let's buy Manchester City. Yeah, because or, they know that it's so connected to the communities there. You know, it's not, yeah. it's not in, a, in a lot of ways, or, or rather not in all cases, it's not just about making money. It's because they know there's that community connection which has just been going on for so long, generations and generations of family. Like in the UK, like to a large extent, football is still a working working class game. And I don't think, you know, if you've grown up in New Zealand and gone through the the New Zealand football system, it's not really the same for soccer here. It's kind of wildly different, really. I think here it's mostly, I mean, a lot lot of the times kind of English um, immigrants and, you know, British anyway, Scottish and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, And, uh, yeah, it doesn't have the same kind of like, well, it's just a much smaller, smaller sport, right? I mean, I grew up in South Africa where football was kind of huge. Mm. It's like a really big sport. And you can just kind of, it's just a different sense of the understanding of the game in, in New Zealand. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's what rugby is here, right? Yeah. Yeah, but also and, it's like, yeah, nah, because it's like. Yeah, it's, you know, if you, if you want to try and map kind of like any kind of class things onto the sports. I think it's more like kind of league, maybe. I don't know. I'd say something it's, like it's that. It's the Warriors, or, isn't it? It's, South it's the Warriors. Warriors. Uh, the, difference that, the difference, though, is that league is a much smaller sport here. So you can imagine that kind of like class component, but it's the biggest sport by, yeah. by a mile, really. So I, um, I think, like you, you were mentioning earlier, Reese, that's a, that's a huge reason uh, as to why it's been easier for this kind of deal to, to go ahead and get so much what seems broad support and why we haven't maybe seen a, a public pushback yet. Although, you know, some of the players association stuff might, might begin something more in that, yeah. that vein. Yeah. I think it's that they also worked very hard. Like New Zealand rugby as an organization 
worked very hard to publicly get out and get the message out yeah. that this is a this is a complete win for us and there are no downsides whatsoever. Please do not pay attention to those percentages. And yeah, they, I, I and they got the old boys in and they got the provincial unions and they managed to get Grant Robertson to kind of give it the sneaky nod to the day of the meeting in an interview going, Well, obviously it looks like it's very good and you know, we'd approve of things that can help the game grow. You know, there was a lot of from the very top of, you know, from yeah. in culture and stuff, whereas the the twelve clubs in the Super League weren't allowed to go public until they went public because if they had UEFA and FIFA would jump up and down on their heads until they exploded like watermelons. (laughs) I remember talking about this kind of like the way that they move so quickly. The only time, the first time I heard about the, um, the rugby thing was a few weeks ago. I think it might've been Aaron's Ed where Sean Fitzpatrick was getting interviewed and he was in favor of this. Right. Um, And, but the sense that I got from the interview was that he was in the, minority of kind of like ex-players and the people that he'd spoken to and he was trying to convince people. I mean, he, he basically said it, right? Like, um, I'm trying to get people to see that we really need this in the games, blah, 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 right? And so the first time I heard about it, I was like, oh, there's this kind of like plan that doesn't seem like it's going to happen at all. And then I don't follow it that closely. And the next thing, there's this AGM and then it's done. And the other thing is I'm not sure exactly that people, the public probably don't keep abreast of things in the same way that they did where everyone consumed the same media and there was a kind of like communal understanding of what was going on. Everyone consumes media in these kind of like alienated ways. And I don't know, I, because, because I do too. I just don't know. I don't watch the news. Or I don't want watch the news or anything. So I don't know like what the public response has been, but I certainly haven't heard of any kind of protests or anything. No. And, yeah. and, and the thing is, you're right. It is, it is much more, distant from individuals than, than football clubs are, right? Football clubs, they often local. It's like a local community institution, whereas the All Blacks are kind of like at this level, it's kind of national level that people don't feel a sense of kind of closeness to, right? I mean, everyone might feel that when the All Blacks win or something, but it certainly doesn't seem as if you can ever, um, you know, change the way the organization runs or something. But that sense is probably a bit heightened for football clubs because they are so local. I think one of the other things we need to keep in mind is just how easy it is in New Zealand uh, for any kind of PR if you know what you're doing. Because, you know, we're talking about kind of bottlenecks uh, and gatekeeping before. And in New Zealand, you know, you could probably talk to, you know, 10 or 12 people and ensure basically a, a media washout if you wanted so it's not maybe it's maybe it's not just alienation uh via media um or in terms of what you're what you're following it's literally there's been hardly any content and in, in opposition to this right and I, i'm not saying they're like going out of their way to you know take backhanders or something but in terms of like maybe provincial clubs or you know, some of the ex-players, there might be, you know, speaking fees or like, oh, your club will get this much money. You know, there might be something on the line for them, uh, which makes it a lot more palatable for them. Uh, but if you're in New Zealand, just in general, and we're talking like across politics, across media, um, across sports, if you are already in a position of power, you're just like, oh, I'm just going to rock up to, you know, the VIP seats uh, at X event, and there'll be three or four people uh from media or, or politicians or Grant Robertson, 
or whoever there, and I'll just have a chat with them about it and tell them how great it is. And it's not that they're necessarily like trying to lead them on or like asking for a favor, but that's those powerful people's first interaction with this great idea. Like that, the consent is being manufactured all the way along the pipeline. I guess is what I'm saying. It's it's not just when it gets to us. So I think some of this is about how our media is operating in New Zealand as well, because a lot of the detail in this is behind the Herald paywall. Oh, great. So, yeah. you know, there's been a lot of articles about it, but not necessarily negative, but they're behind a paywall. So you ain't going to see them. There's been, I think, stuff have done two pieces from, I think, Kevin Norquay and Mark Reason, who finally wrote something good about, yo, we're privatizing this sport. Isn't anyone a bit worried about this? And we've already done it, so there's nothing we can do about it. And I think I mentioned I mentioned to Kyle, I've got a friend who's a journalist, and I said, what do you think about this? And he goes, I'm just despairing that none of us are across it. And I think even in one of the stuff pieces, they say, hey, what does Silver Lake, so what does Silver Lake think about the New Zealand Players Union's concern? And the answer is Silver Lake have made no comment whatsoever about this. They are just not talking. And why would they? Because they don't have to. Yeah. yeah, it's like, we've got billions of dollars. We don't have to talk to you. And we've got and- people like at the highest levels of the game who are supporting us, you know? You know, like, and all these like folk heroes supporting us. And this is this is one of the reasons why this kind of incestuous relationship between Sky and the All Blacks is so kind of horrible. Because you know, Sky have these these rugby programs. You can bet that you're not going to get kind of any kind of like journalism done about the pros and cons of this deal, right? And you certainly won't get the kinds of things that you saw in England, where all these people on on the TV were going going off about how how horrible. The Super League was. I can't imagine somebody like Jeff Wilson doing what um, some of the pundits did. Yeah, doing a, pulling a Gary Neville and just yeah. going, "This Ooh, is absolutely yeah. disgraceful." And yeah, this, yeah, this know, is. They should all be ashamed. It's just like, yeah, or like top yeah, players because, as well, like just coming out and saying, "This is disgusting." Like this is not what football's about, right? Yeah, yeah, but I can't. So I can't imagine something like that happening on Sky, right? Because Sky and the All Blacks. I mean, everything on Sky is kind of like this propaganda thing for the All Blacks. There's never really any kind of like very strong criticism of the organization from what I can understand, right? And the NRU. I could be wrong about this, but I, I've never seen anything that would make me go, oh, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. No, it does have a certain North Korean flavor about it. You know? Yeah, it's just like, even even compared to a place like Australia, for example, where, you know, the, I watch heaps of um, NRL, uh, Rugby League, and Fox over there can take a very kind of like um, critical stance towards the way the games run. Like very critical. And you just, that's just kind of absent in, the TV products that are put out on Sky when it comes to New Zealand rugby. Yeah, they really do have um, kind of everything tied up, huh? Yeah. Well, it's the you know the mainstream channels cannot do sports coverage because they get highlights packages, but you can't do a sports show where you're not allowed to show the footage because mm. they own everything. And it is that. I think what Carl said earlier about it being a small pool. I mean, and like I've done some stuff in New Zealand football, and it is a small community of very English people for the most part running it. And it is, everyone knows everyone else. The way things are are the way things have always been done. And introducing changes is always immensely unpopular. And, of course, there is no money either. You know, there's no money in football. We just don't get it. Like, almost every community club that uh, Carl has been talking about runs off pokey funds. They run off trusts. That's that's how clubs get their money because there's no, there's no big sponsorship because rugby's got it all. But not even community rugby. All the big sponsorships go to all the big teams and all the stuff that is linked towards them, all the big clubs within the community. So that kind of 
closeness of New Zealand Rugby and Sky. I think New Zealand Rugby also bought Rugby Pass as well, which is the overseas streaming service. Now that'll be bundled into Silver Lake as well now. Because I know that the best way, if you don't want to pay for a Sky subscription, is to, and you can edit this out if you want to. No, keep it in. If you you have a look on you have a look on some streaming sites for some uh, pirated streams, and they are always the rugby pass ones, because all people have just like tapped into them, and I can watch as much Super Rugby as I like without having to pay Sky a damn thing. Um, you mean what you mean is you could watch as much. Uh, yes, in like, theory. Yeah. In yeah, theory, yeah. obviously, I would not do that. I'm actually going to watch the game this afternoon to watch the first ever women's Super Rugby game, for oh, which the women's amazing. players will not be paid. I, lo- I love that, but um, they might be paid after Silver Lake take take charge. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, huge sums of money, no doubt. Right? Sure. Yeah. I mean, the, oh, I, I had to written down there somewhere. You know, the most money a New Zealand rugby player can earn in a year? Seventy k. One hundred ninety-five grand. Okay, I, I, that's the cap. That is your that I is your best players in the country. One hundred ninety five grand a what, year. What's the minimum they got to have with the floor here? Sub fifty. Yeah, you've got some players, development players, on thirty grand, and yeah, that's that's the maximum. And when you look at that money compared to say what's being offered elsewhere, or again, let's compare it to football. No, let's not compare it to football. <laughs> 195 grand a year would get you, I think, uh, Cristiano Ronaldo eyelash, or possibly yeah. Lionel Messi could breathe in a bag for you. Hey, we're not we're not going to try and take that time out of their schedule for that kind of paltry sum. Hey, thanks so much for coming along, both of you. It's been it's been really great to chat about uh, some of these sports industry issues. It's not something we usually get the chance to do uh, on one of two hundred. But if people are wanting to read more about this or kind of find out more about Silver Lake, John, where where could they possibly look? I'm currently trying to write a lot of stuff down, but there are some really good things out there, which I will um, post on my Twitter feed and get you guys to retweet, because I know that there are a lot of people that have focused on the European Super League, and there's some fantastic uh, socialist and left-wing thought about how, hey, we saved football from the Super League, but um, actually, like football as it was, it sucks anyway. <laughs> Still, you know, it's just like, hey, we saw, we saved, we saved football from the hyper capitalists. Now we've just got the normal capitalists yeah, in yeah. charge. You're like, in FIFA, right? Ah, uh, yeah, you know, you've got Yeeps Van um, Van Bribes like taking his money in the UEFA office, and you know, it's all of these people, and it's just like, yeah. yes, we've protected the game. And they're like, ah. And with Silver Lake, it's a developing story. I mean, we've even forgot to mention the, the thing you put in the chat this morning about David Kirk saying, yeah, the New Zealand Rugby Players Association said, why don't we sell 5% of the commercial stuff to New Zealanders so that the game is owned here? And New Zealand Rugby have gone, well, we can't do that. And David Kirk, was like, David Kirk went, why not? And New Zealand Rugby went, shut up. Yeah, so that is on RNZ. So... There are things trickling through, and as you said, it's a developing story. If people want to see those links on your Twitter feed, John, uh, where can they find you? I'm at Posting Dad, which is a change from last time because I finally uh, finally changed my hat. Um, <laughs> and I may be writing something for one of 200, but I've got to find the time between parenting and uh, hopefully enjoying some rugby at Eden Park this afternoon. Lovely. Uh, and Reese, do you want to give out your at on here? Yeah, sure. It's, um, it's at Reasels. R double E Z E L S. You can follow them if you want, and then stop. Follow and then mute, um, and that will follow and mute. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
No, there's been heaps of really good stuff out of um, from both of them about uh, both of these situations. So, yeah, uh, jump in, give them a follow if you've enjoyed what they had to say uh, during this cast. If you've enjoyed this cast and you think that some of this information uh, would be useful to people, uh, give it a share. Let people know what's happening. Maybe people who aren't so involved in politics usually try and hook them in with some of the sporting content, some of this rugby content uh, that we've, we've put up uh, today. One of 200.nz if you want to hit up uh, some of our articles. Like John was saying, he, he may ha- try and have something up for us soon about um, this developing story. And uh, if you really have enjoyed this, uh, give us a five star on your podcast app. That really helps push us up the uh, rankings so that other people can see us and get involved as well. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. We'll catch you next time. Relentless routines, the dying embers of your dreams. Is the lie aspirational? Will you die keeping your glass half full? The relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is a lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full? You don't hate your nation You hate nationalism You don't hate your nation You hate nationalism Hey